fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your host, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino. John Copenhaver. And Al Warren. FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Dave Martino is here. Ah, yes. I was waiting for, you know, <laughs> You're for Nick no name. No name? name? Yeah. <laughs> Dave Nameless Martino. Okay, there we go. Yeah. It's actually yeah. better. Better, better, better. <laughs> Nameless Dave. Well, today we're getting into another kind of dark mystery thriller subject matter. And uh, the book we're talking about is new. It's called Rumor of Evil. It's a novel. It's by our guest, Gary Braver. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Alan and Dave. Gary, so I, I can't help but notice that uh, this kind of has a, a dark sort of situation here. So where did you come up with the idea for this book, first of all? Okay, uh, well, this is the first of a series. The backstory, like any crime novelist, or like many crime novelists, I have a file of really bizarre real-life crimes. And one really stuck out. Um, you might have heard of it. It came out of 2014 in Waukesha, Wisconsin, called the Slenderman case. And it was, it, it's really a disturbing story of two 12-year-old girls who lured another 12-year-old girl into the woods where they stabbed her 19 times. And their reason, the reason they gave to the police, was they wanted to appease Slenderman which is a uh, faceless internet cartoon character who has, is kind of like an archetypal Pied Piper, goes after children. And they were afraid if, that they, if they did not sacrifice their girlfriend, Slenderman would kill their families. Luckily, the victim survived the stabbing attacks, and the two girls are still in psychiatric institutions. That fascinated me, and... Even if they were brought to trial, which they weren't because they were children or police tried to give some kind of explanation for motives, that you, you never really get them. And this is where I guess the, uh, uh, the imagination takes over. And I wanted to know what drove them to do such brutal things to their girlfriends. Um, and um, I started looking up research on bullies. And I discovered that there are profiles of both the bully as well as the, the bullied. And the the bullied is always a kind of an outsider to the adolescent norm. Uh, they're either overweight or underweight and are tall and gangly, or they're disfigured in a funny way, or they talk oddly, or they have an accent, or they're from different demographic or religion or ethnic uh, group. It's the ultimate outsider, and kids pick on them. The bully is usually a kind of an alpha kid who wants to show his or her peers that, uh, he's superior, he's powerful, and picks on this victim. So that gave me both a kind of profile of the victim and the victimizers, the bullies. And so I 
tried to come up with an outsider. Uh, and I came up with a 15-year-old uh, exchange student who comes to Lexington, Massachusetts, near where I live outside of Boston, and to stay for three months and learn the American ways and learn the culture and share her own culture. Um, but she is dark complexion. She is of Roma or Romani extraction. He has really uncool kind of clothing and strange braids the size of her head. And so the kids have fun Americanizing her and introducing her to hot dogs and backyard barbecues and, and take her to a rock concert. And everything is, is going well. She's from a pig farm in rural Slovakia, and she's of this Romani extraction. And what she used to do when she was not taking care of the pigs on the farm would sometimes read palms. And so at a pizza party in Lexington, affluent Lexington, Massachusetts, she decides to read palms. And then dark things start happening to her friends and friends of the family. And that is where the rumors fly. So, yeah, and she's accused of witchcraft and the, the novel takes off from there. Well, you, you know, I bully myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's any research we can do in that. No, when, you, when you're doing this, you're talking about a 15-, 16-year-old. Yeah. How do you get into the mindset of writing that? And, and not only just as as that being that age, yeah. as, as you're not anymore, but but also being part of that age group, kind of their slang, their language, yeah. you know, what they think is cool and not cool. Like, how do you get into that world? Right, right. Well, first, I, I, my wife and I raised two boys, and they're now adults. So they passed the teen years, and I got to know their friends and listen to their language. But for the last 45 years or more, I've been teaching uh, at Northeastern University in Boston and occasionally had freshman classes where kids are only 18 years old and, and you know, only two years older than um, Vladimir, the, the, the victim in, uh, in Rumor of Evil. So I, I picked up the slang, the jargon, and also the mindset. Um, there's a kind of a paranoia that sets into young people. Um, they want to be accepted. They want to be part of the in-group. So they are, um, they will be sometimes almost in a conspiratorial way invited to pick on somebody, to bully somebody. So I, I saw that going on throughout the high school years of my kids, even though they were neither bullied or were bullies. But I, I, I saw that happening and also the experience teaching young people at, at Northeastern University. And I picked up kind of their paranoia, the language and, and the sometimes really odd frame of mind that young people have and often hopefully grow out of. Oh, well, well hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, some move on and get into politics. Uh, yeah, and, and that's what, in fact, you, you pointed up a good thing because the, the conspiracy theory stuff that's been floating around for the last several years at a lower level gets really bizarre. And, and that whole bit about this kid is reading palms, she's a witch. She, you know, prays to Satan. The, she probably drinks the blood of a Christian baby. So, and then they grow up and become politicians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they get the job. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of bizarre. It is. I, it's, so when you when you get into this this area, and because you talk about the Slender Man, and you you saw the original case, yeah, and this sort of led you down this road. Mm -hmm. So, at the beginning of this, did you have it in your mind to try and explain that? Was that sort of a subtext or some sort of a meaning that you wanted people to get? Yeah, um, th that came after I decided that that would be the backstory. 
Um, and the current story is two investigating homicide cops in the Cambridge, Matthews area. They're investigating a woman who is hanging in her backyard. And I wanted to relate that particular, well, it looks like, it looks like suicide, but it's staged. And they begin to suspect there's something behind this. And then that connects to the backstory uh, 19 years ago, where this young girl from Slovakia fell asleep in the treehouse. She loved sleeping in the treehouse. She loved sleeping outdoors and looking at the stars back home in Slovakia. And, and one night, Halloween night, um, she dies in a, in a fire in that treehouse. And um, that relates to the current story, which is who killed this woman in the opening paragraph. And that is a cover-up for what happened uh, almost 20 years before. So I knew there'd be two layers. I like the fact that a cold case could inform a current case. And so that was the kind of strategy I use and the layering. So your characters themselves, this might sound like a little bit of a weird question, but do you have a relationship with the characters you've developed for this book? Uh, the only relationship I had is that informs something in the book is my wife. I often use her as a model if I'm looking for uh, a, a secondary female character, uh, oftentimes either the lover of or the, the partner of a, a main male character. Kirk Lucian is the is one half of the detective team that investigates that woman hanging in the opening scene, and he's married to Olivia. What makes a protagonist, particularly a cop, interested is not so much, Mitch, interesting rather, is not so much detection. They've got to be smart. They've got to be able to figure things out. But it's the detective themselves. And to make them sympathetic to readers, you give them baggage. And the baggage I gave to Kirk was that a little over a year ago before the book opens up, their daughter, his and Olivia's daughter, is killed in a hit-and-run accident, and they never catch the, the driver. And that sends them both into a deep funk. And that ended up in a separation uh, he was so dysfunctional in his grief and loss that he could not attend his own wife's grief and loss. And so they decided to separate. So the opening of the book, he's got this baggage. In any novel, any decent novel, there are two quests. One, the public quest and an inner private quest. The public quest for the detective is who left that body of the woman in the opening scene. The inner private quest is I want to get back with my wife. I want to make amends and get back to being whole again with her. These two quests, the outer quest is get the bad guy, and the inner quest is getting beyond his baggage. So that is, I, I did not, thank goodness, did not suffer the loss of a child with my wife, but we knew people who did. And so I kind of drew from some of those dark experiences with them. How do you know in a story like this? Uh, because, of course, like when you're doing this type of uh, thriller, mm -hmm. uh, the beginning scene, you know, you've got the, the hanging yes. uh, and, and that, so it kind of catches the reader. Yes. How do you know when to bring in the baggage mm -hmm. and where it, where it fits and how much of it do you need to put in because you don't want it to be too much? Exactly, exactly. I think there were nine or ten chapters of the flashbacks to the past, you reach a kind of an instinct where you start needing to fill in the background. And filling in the background should be dramatic, not told, kind of shown. So about four or five chapters into the book, I realized now we've got to connect this to something that happened in the past. 
uh, and they're going trudging through people who knew the dead woman and questioning them and moving out to somebody else and not coming up with a, a very clear suspect. Uh, and then we move into the past. And once something is related in the past, kind of vaguely to what's going on in the, few, in, in the, the present time, we get back and drop clues as we go along that there is something behind this woman who is hanging. Um, but it, 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 it's a kind of an instinct that, you know, you, you, you develop after having written for a while. Well, how do you keep track of uh, your continuity of, of your characters and the clues? Do you, do you have any tools? Do you um, have a, a process? No, I, I just, you know, actually, guys, I used to write outlines in the earlier novels, and it was almost like avoidance behavior. My first couple of novels had 90 pages, single space, and, you know, three of those, and you got a book, man. <laughs> so, and, <laughs> and, and, and then I learned, you know, about one-third through the outline, I decided to take a different direction, which is far more interesting, and get me to where I'm hoping the book is going to end up better. And so I just stopped doing the outlines. But what I do is I have bulleted points. This is going to happen. This has got you know little, little twists in the um, in the flow of the plot, um, and then I just you know jump in page one. It was a dark and stormy night, and see where it takes me. <laughs> you know, I I, um, I had a, the great fortune of having Robert B. Parker as my office mate at Northeastern University, and you know the all the Spencer novels and the others and Sunny Randall. Uh, I watched him. His desk was right next to mine. We were closest friends to the day he died for 40 years. In any case, I watched him demythologize the process. He would write five pages a day, and at the end of a year, he'd have 300-something pages, and he'd send that in to his agent, and lo and behold, he, a, a book, yeah, he had a book. But he, he never outlined, and almost chuckled when I used to use an outline, but he said, whatever works. But I learned that you have to trust that you have a sense of where your story is going to go in the best possible direction. So um, I just kind of, you know, remembered what he had done and uh, started doing that in the last several books. Um, and it seems to work. Do you, have, do, you, do you have a secret or a trick to when you're in the middle of a chapter going back uh, to a flashback, how you write that out of current day? Like, is there something to, that, that will make a reader understand what's happening? Yes, right, right. Yes, there are little clues that suggest something has happened in the past and about a third of the way through um we have the present day homicide detectives meet up with the cop who was called in the night the treehouse caught on fire and she says i suspect this was not an accident or suicide and so now we have oh ho so maybe there was a past act of murder um and so you drop that in at probably the third way, uh, well, about a third of the way through in the present narrative and a suggestion that uh, something untoward has happened in the past. And I think we're going to have to go back and take up this cold case. And that's, you know, but also once I got into the backstories, the, the, the flashback stories, I kind of wrote several of them in a row without getting back to the main tale because that had a continuity that I knew I could move up when I needed it in the regular flow of the other of all the other chapters. So I um I just knew that I'd squeeze them in somehow. And that just made the trick was making transitions from the current day story to the past story without 
befuddling the reader. Uh, and so it's, you know, and I befuddle pretty quickly. Then I give it to my wife and say, is this befuddling? Does this make any sense? And uh, she's a good reader. And she's like, yeah, do this, do that. Yeah. You know, make it clear or something. <laughs> that, can be, that can be a tricky thing because yeah. Uh, yeah. you can really lose someone and then they don't know what's going on and then they get confused and then. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, and then you can lose a reader that way. So I was just, you know, trying to get the trick, you know. So I can, yeah, right. But that's the benefit of having a, a very good agent that I have and also good editors. So, you know, they they really do have a, uh, an unjaded view of it. They, they come into it cold and they say, wait a minute, this is not working. Do this, do this. And, um, so there's always that benefit of the outside reader. Now, you bring in witchcraft, of course, and, and, and palm reading and all that stuff. Did you yourself do some research in that area to try and get it um – Sound good, or are you a palm reader yourself, or something? Or? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, first of all, there's nothing supernatural in the book. It's only a suspicion of something supernatural, and that's why the, the rumors of evil. I wrote a book a long time ago called The Stone Circle, which involved uh, a flashback to 1692 here in the Greater Boston area, both Salem, Massachusetts, and Boston, where 19 people were executed, uh, 18 by hanging. Uh, and one by being pressed to death uh, with stones in Boston Common. And all of them were, swear you're a witch, uh, and we'll let you go. And one of the women, I read the, um, the transcript of the trials, the Salem Witch Trials, which are absolutely fascinating. And at one point, good wife Biddle is accused of witchcraft, and she says, I don't know what a witch is. What is a witch? You know, I think her cow might have broken through a fence and eaten someone else's hay, and someone got hysterical and said, she's a witch, she's a witch. So it was kind of, you know, uh, scapegoating. It was the research there that helped me out uh, in Rumor of Evil. And in fact, I even mentioned uh, the Salem witch trials at one point when one cop is talking to another cop and it said, you know, these things don't change. And, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're still screaming witch, I mean, witch hunt and all that. And we've heard that in the news, too. Yeah, yeah. We're keeping the witch alive. Yeah, that's right. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you know that your characters are, you're going to get into a series with them, for instance, when you get into a series? Is there something about the characters themselves at the beginning or that you know before you even start writing this book that these are going to be a series of characters that you use? Well, first of all, the the uh, publisher said, would you mind writing, turning this book into a series? I said, no. I said, that, you know, um, that's both easy and a challenge. Easy because you have a few of the main characters already in place. The challenge is trying to come up with more baggage for the main characters. As I said, that's what in, you, you, you try to make a character who has something the most to lose in the novel. And so that in, in includes the two detectives in the story. The second book um, is called The Heat of the Moment, and that's already done. And I've now moved on beyond the, the husband and wife get back, uh, kind of giveaway, at, at the end of Rumor of Evil. But the next issue is having another child. And there's a contention there between the husband and wife, Kirk and Olivia. Uh, we can't replace Megan. We're not replacing Megan. We're going to keep her memory alive and still love her. We're just going to give her a brother and a sister or a sister. So that becomes, and then the, the, the third one, which is in the middle of right now, keeping the same characters, and I'm now working on what that baggage will be so that that private quest 
still is alive and, and and working and keeping the reader endeared to the main characters. So that's the challenge of that. I mean, I cannot imagine having a, a tense novel in a series and trying to come up with that personal quest. I mean, it gets dissolved unless they keep on breaking up with people or um, a partner gets killed in a shootout and is, now guilt has come in. Or, which is kind of familiar, the main character has a hang-up on alcohol or drugs and is addicted. So you know, these are some of the possibilities of uh, down the line. It's interesting. Do, do your characters ever surprise you while you're writing? Do they do they take the plot that you've envisioned off the rails, so to speak? Uh, <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying, yeah. Um, there are surprises sometimes when they say that, you know, I'm going along and say, ooh, wouldn't it be interesting if he or she said this and we went in that direction? I don't know what goes on the black box of, imagine, of the imagination, but sometimes I'm kind of surprised at the stuff that uh, we come up with, we my characters come <laughs> up with. <yeah. laughs> how, how is it for you writing an evil character? Do you sort of, is it a, something of, like you like a lot? Is it kind of a favorite getting into a bad person or a bad character in a book, or do you dislike being in that, in that area? Uh, yeah, that's that's a, a very good question. I, I think that, I think one should love one's villains. I think that if, if, I don't think a real bad guy or a bad woman gets up in the morning and looks at the mirror and says, that is the face of evil. I think that in real life, people who do bad things to other people have sweet smelling justifications, reasons for why they do bad things. They either are envious of other people or they did not have great parents or a great upbringing or they're at odds with society or the law or nature. I mean, maybe they're deformed in some way or have some issues uh, or with God and they feel that they have been wronged. Um, but the, but ultimately there is vengeance, revenge. I'm going to get back and I deserve to get back because all my life I've been, and this is my way and I'm, yeah, like I said, sweet-smelling reasons of of justice for me. So, one of the one of the inspirations for anyone who is who's writing villains is Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs, um, which is a brilliant sleight of hand on the reader because he managed to make sympathetic a psychopathic cannibal mm. and have a lector. <laughs> And you're kind of rooting for him throughout the book and even in the movie version. At the end, you know, he goes after uh, Chilton, what that guy's name was, who was putting a hit on Jodie Foster. Um, and, and, and that is ingenious. So, you know, get, make him really smart, make him really classy. You know, he's, he's, he's drawing pictures of the, um, of the Duomo in Florence or the view from the, uh, uh, the old bridge there, um, and Ponte Vecchio. So it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see that happen. So you really have to love your villains because you have to kind of make, flesh them out. You just can't have a bad guy because he's a psychopath and he kills people. You've got to have, get in the inside. And um, as I said, I really believe that bad people do have inner lives. And uh, if they're not just psychopathic, uh, they have reasons for what they do. Of course, you know, because in their mind, they think they're doing something good, like in their world. Yes, yeah, yes, exactly. they're, yeah, yeah. They're trying to make everything right, correct, or something. And, and in their world, they're going, 
mm-hmm. you know, um, even though they can't see themselves necessarily. Correct. From the other side. Or you also, do you think about the violence and how you write anything kind of in a violent manner uh, in the book itself? Yeah, I, I don't like gory scenes, but the um, the opening scene and the opening description of the woman hanging is pretty graphic. But it's also through the point of view of the cops. So because Kirk is the anchor character and point of view character, um, the violence is often off stage, um, but in the but it's reported to them. And so um, in a sense, I spare the reader any kind of gore. Um, but, you know, the 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 violence is there. The violence comes out in the emotional violence. Uh, in the back chapters and then in the present chapter two, that you watch people convince themselves that they have to do this because this person is evil. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's the, the heat of the moment, the heat of the emotions that is more interesting to me than putting a noose around someone's neck or a, a knife in the back. Right. Yeah. It's more interesting. More. Yeah. So where, how do you deal with, because you're dealing with children in a sense, you did, you know, teenagers and stuff. Right. How do you deal with violence against them, or when people are bullying them, and how far can you go? Like, would you touch child murder, for instance, in a in a fiction like this, a dark fiction, or do you stay away from that sort of violence toward any minors? Yes, uh, the the violence is described kind of leading up to and then after the fact, um, and. Uh, it's the aftermath of the violence that it, I find interesting in terms of the reaction of the people who were behind it. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, I don't have, I have a graphic description of the fire um, and then the aftermath, but I don't have the agony and the horror of what takes place in that treehouse. Um, but it's imagined and there's an, or enough suggestions to trigger the imagination of the reader. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those sensitive things in that. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you don't want to gross out the you know, the reader having a, a young child be you know, brutalized. I mean, that's... yeah, it's kind of something you can talk about after, I guess. And and it's about of course. it's about of course. the uh, let's say how how people deal with the situation rather than going through the the gore and the blood and all that. That's right, Alan. Exactly. In fact, you never see a movie where a child is being brutalized in any way or killed. I mean, it's always before or after the fact. So characters, characters are really key to to to, um, to readers, you know, because they like Sherlock Holmes, you know, where they'll they'll a hundred years after the character is written, they go looking for the person's house when they're in England or something, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. people get really into characters, and that's that's really. In fact, they'll know the character more than they would even the writer's name, you know, at times. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, exactly, yeah. What do you think the trick is to that? Like, what do you, is, there, is there something that, um, that's key to, to someone going, oh, yeah, and they love that character? Yeah, I, I think um, turning on a book with, regu- book with regularity is the same character, uh, and that is, you know, that's the secret of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes all the way to, you know, Bob Parker's um, Spencer, um, you know, Dastro Hammett, Sam Spade, and, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler's, um, um, it's not blank in his name, in any case, he'll come to, but the, you know, it's, it's the, it's the familiarity with the character, and it's like, I, an old friend comes home when you pick up the next book, uh, 
I don't with the competition out there of so many books coming out a couple hundred thousand a year, it's hard to make that mark without banging out a novel every nine months or a year uh, and then just hoping that it catches on. Um, but it really is the strength of the character and just, you know, hopefully uh, Kirk and, and Whit Mandy here will, <laughs> will, will get some attention. <laughs> How do you create um, your dialogue? Uh, do, do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear your characters? I know some writers say that they hear the characters or they might read the dialogue out loud to make sure it sounds right to the ear. How do you accomplish that? Yeah, I, I, I hear it in my head. Um, I don't hear it out loud, but I sometimes mutter to myself. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I look for it. First of all, I have to determine before I start a chapter or a scene, I make bulleted points. What new stuff is going to come out in this chapter? What ex surprises or disappointments are going to come out? And how would this chapter end? So in a sense, it kind of lined up the the patches of dialogue to achieve those those objectives in the chapter, and then hopefully you hear them the back and forth in the head in your head and put that down. But I I go over and over and over dialogue, and in reality, dialogue people don't talk like dialogue in books or even in movies. I mean, it's, you know, there's so many ums and does, and you know, just kind of you know, an empty space of words that don't you know connect to much at all. Um, so you really have to streamline it, make it sound real or realistic, um, and yet move the story along and hopefully, and this is the challenge, help flesh out the voice or fill out the voice of the characters who are in the dialogue. Um, and the vocabulary difference, uh, the expression, the, um, the slang they might use in uh, coupling that with the description of whoever the, the point of view character is. Uh, the expressions on the face, I mean, she looked scared when she was seeing this. I could tell he was lying, that kind of stuff. Um, and in that, that in-between descriptive stuff, along with the language, is, um, is hopefully a, a, a good scene of dialogue. But I do hear it in my head and then polish it and polish it into it uh, until it achieves and I'm hoping to achieve in a scene. Right, right. Now, do they still let you drive when you're hearing these voices in your head? Yeah. <laughs> God, I like that. <laughs> I pull over the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's, 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 a, it's quite a process. Do you have some sort of thing? Is there something you want people to get out of the book, or is it just entertainment? Um, well, the first eight novels were uh, medical thrillers, and so it's, it goes right back to Frankenstein, watch out what you wish for. Um, this is also kind of a watch out what you wish for here, but it, it doesn't have the, uh, the scientific stuff, I mean, inventing, uh, 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 coming up with a, uh, a serum that would um, prevent you from aging, which I did in Elixir, or boosting the intelligence of children in, uh, in, in gray matter. So, but this does have a kind of a moral watch out with the wish for. Um, and, um, be nice to people. <laughs> Too late. Because <laughs> you can't tell they might be a witch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You never know. You turn into like a, 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 I don't know, a frog or something, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's certainly got a lot. It's a lot more than bewitched, right? Right. I mean, it's a little bit more darker than that. Yeah. So when you're doing, um, a, a series of, with characters and stuff mm -hmm. like that, 
you you already got the second one done and you're going into a third. So yeah. do you kind of know um, where it's going to end in yeah. your head? Yeah, usually I do know where the story is going to end. Um, and some people will be living happily ever after, and some people will be either behind bars or uh, in the ground. So I, I know that um, truth and justice has got to win out, um, but there are oftentimes tragic endings, even though justice is justice, justice prevails. The there's always the main character has to kind of lose something a little bit um, and come out of it with a sense of he's sadder and wiser at the end. So that is kind of probably the way my novels end. Sadder in a sense that, particularly for the cops, they witness such brutality. And wiser, you know, maybe in their own lives, how they've rectified some of the situations of their, of their baggage. Um, but I usually know generally how it's going to end, who's going to make it, who's not going to make it. It was interesting. The last book I did was called Tuesday with the Tess Garrison. It did very well. And we got, we know each other for 25 years and she had a Christmas party asked me if I want to write a book with her. And I said, give me a nanosecond to think this over. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> we were two thirds through the book and Tess called me and, and I we were talking. She said, Who's the villain? <laughs> We had set up five potential, five suspects, each of whom had a reason to commit the crime, but we couldn't decide which one to go with. And it was a matter of, we're going to have to, this is like dropping a pebble in a steel pond. We're going to have to go back and change everything when we finally decide who this is going to be. And and she said, how about character A? I said, no, that that character A cannot be a bad person. It's got to be character B. And so we went back and forth and finally decided on character B and then had to go back and line up all the ducks. So it is a, you know, um, uh, yeah, it's a matter of sometimes you don't quite know how it's going to end. But in a detective novel, I mean, it's, it's driven by clues and logic and putting and solving a puzzle. And it immediately invites the reader to second-guess the author and try to solve it and say, oh, I saw this coming, or be surprised at the end. And and so um, you have to, you're really trying to manipulate the truth in the book uh, and, and drop red herrings um, to distract them, but not pull a rabbit out, at, out of a hat at the end and say, oh, I see why this person is the villain um so everything falls into place but that is that's tricky business but if it's done right it's kind of fun and satisfying yeah yeah Yeah. you can get it out when you mention uh justice prevails Hmm? is this sort of kind of um why you would write fiction like when you come across the slender man idea and you Mm -hmm. hear about it you kind of and you're kind of wondering in your mind well what what would cause this? What what goes on with the bully and what goes mm-hmm. on with all of this stuff? And you're putting it all together. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have went a nonfiction way. You could have went after the real story and got into mm-hmm. it and found characters and stuff. Right. But do you do a, a fictional version of a story because you can make justice prevail? Yes, that, that exactly. That's well said too. Yeah. I mean, real crimes are grubby. They're pretty awful. Um, I mean, and and so the difference between life and literature is literature has to make sense. And so when I take a crime story and and fold it in, uh, put it through my squeeze box and put it into a novel, 
I try to make sense out of it. That's why you stay away from psychopaths, you know, serial killers because they kill because of love and killing. Um, there's got to be something behind that in a book. In, in real life, it may not be. There's just a, some loose screw someplace. Um, so you try to make sense so that it makes at least literary or fictional sense um, for why terrible things happen as opposed to the grubbiness of real crime and um, a, a very sometimes a very clear lack of motive or understanding and baffling police. I did a lot of research using real cops and local police departments here, and they see some of the worst crimes um, this side of a war zone. And I remember saying, what keeps you from gnawing on your Glock or braiding a noose? I mean, how do you stay sane seeing senseless crime? He said, well, Every six months, we have psychological training. We go and get mentors um, or talk to friends. And cops usually talk to people in blue. They don't usually talk to your next-door neighbor and say, I'm really struggling. So it is a um, – in, 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 in a book, you really have to even deal with some of that, that, that uh, some of the baggage might be just being overwhelmed by the horrors of what they experience wearing a badge. Oh yeah, that's yeah. a big part of it. I've I've done thirty books on fiction, and yeah. and you talk to the cops, and you get them. I get them involved because it's more about the process. Yes, and yeah, there's there's just no there's no real and justice. I, I will say, quite often doesn't prevail. So that's kind of the issue. Sure. Like you can yeah. make the bad guy get what they deserve in yeah. in a fiction, where sometimes, yeah. quite often in nonfiction, it's it doesn't really happen, right. or it happens really late. Yeah. And that, that was the attraction to me of having a cold case. We solved the case that's almost two decades old. And, and so that is, to me, kind of gratifying. But, you know, I'm controlling the real world. making <laughs> making it up. I'm going along. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, while you're at it, we've got a lot of repairs for you to do with the real world. <laughs> <laughs> there's some, there's some, you've got a heavy load ahead of you. This is, this is not light lifting here. This I passed on that one. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is heavy, heavy work here. Right. You know? Oh, it's crazy. But, well, that's interesting. So what do you like most about a book? Like when you... Um, when you read a book, so when you're reading a book, what keeps you reading to the end? What is it that you go, wow, this is great, I love this, and you stay with it? Can you identify kind of what the things are that are great in a book? Sure. I think there are three things. One is the, the quality of the characterization of the characters, I mean, how, how they're fleshed out. And, and two, um, a kind of narrative thrust that the, the book moves well. Um, and three, um, not rushing so much, but that there are action scenes and reflection scenes. And the reflection scenes is where you get the characters, get a sense of who they really are. Um, and, um, and, and, and good language. I mean, I'm an English professor, a former English professor, and I like novels that, that are well crafted and use good language, fresh language, um, original metaphors, whatever. Um, and so I, I'm looking for those three or four things. Um, and um, one of the most gratifying things when someone reviews my book is when they say this was well crafted, this is well written. That to me means an awful lot. Um, and and I think that is true of other writers also. Um, that praising them not only for having good characters, good story, and a, and a real nice pacing to it, but good use of language, good language skill. Well, as a uh, university professor, 
Mm-hmm. Does academia look at popular fiction differently now? Now that there are, I know you've taught horror fiction and science fiction mm-hmm. and, and different types of genre. Right. Or uh, is there still kind of, you know, this, this poo-pooing of genre fiction? Or has the perception changed? Oh, I, I, um, I don't think there's much poo-pooing of genre fiction. Uh, I mean, mysteries are still the most read genre there is. Um, probably second right. would be thrillers. Then. Um, and the, um, I, I think that the thing that bothers me as, as an, uh, an English teacher, a former English teacher, is, um, it's a self-publishing. Uh, there's been a sea change in publishing in the last 20 years. And with self-publishing, I find that the, the lack of editors and the lack of books being represented by an agent means they don't get the really the kind of things that I, I mentioned earlier, having a second reader say, I think you should work on this. And, you know, that there is a kind of, I don't know how to put this without being unkind, kind of a dumbing down of the genres because they've right. not been vetted by, by agents or editors. Um, and I've even had students who have self-published and um, they'd come through with their manuscripts and they would you go over to see, I'll go over it with you and then say, I think you got to go through this again. Uh, but they would publish it anyways with, you know, they pay thousand, two thousand dollars to get something self-published um, and still not well written. Um, uh, too many of the usual blunders, like having four points of view in the opening paragraph. You know? So, uh, <laughs> um, and you know, by the way, Louise Petty, who is, you know, a, a mega star, she does that. And I think Canadians, which she is, and Europe, English uh, people from the UK use multiple points of view, whereas American novelists usually anchor a scene in one character's head. You could have seven different Characters in a, in a mystery or a thriller tell their scenes, tell their, their, their chapters. But switching back and forth in the same scene is jarring to a reader. He's jarring to me, but Louise Penny has got 10 million followers and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful. Canadians are, you got to, don't yeah, turn they can your take back. Feel <laughs> the border, feel the border. <laughs> yeah. They're, the old Canadians are building a wall. They started in 2016. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, they're dangerous people. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it, it's all good. So, listen. Um, speaking of followers and stuff, do you have like a, a website? Do you have like social yeah. media? Where do you like readers to find you? Okay, uh, www.garybraver.com. Uh, yeah, and. Um, that's my website, and um, they can pre-order the book from there. They can pre-order the book from uh, Amazon, Kobo, Barnes and Noble. Um, that Amazon page is already up, uh, and, uh, and there, yeah, you can buy right there. As I said, from my website, GaryBraver.com, um, there are a bunch of buttons that they can click if they want to get themselves a book. Buttons. Well, and 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 it's the editor's pick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I really am. Bring out the well. Does that? But does that? Does that? Doesn't that put pressure on you in a sense? Like you feel uh, like, oh my God! All of a sudden, now you—they've got this yeah. banner. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a fabulous start and fabulous recognition, uh, and I'm uh, so certainly very appreciative. I I think it puts pressure on to um, to dump more, do as much as I can, which I have been doing, as much as I can to get get the word out about the book. Um, 
I've got a lot of interviews with you guys and you, Alan and, and, and Dave, you know, interviews like this, which are wonderful. Um, and bookstore events coming up. We've got a, we have the launch next Tuesday uh, in Lexington, where, in fact, several scenes in the book take place. But, you know, trying to get do signings. Um, and it's uh, it's it's a, it's it's kind of a roller coaster, but you have to do it. And um, what I what was Tess Garrison and I missed when Choose Me came out is everything was done by Zoom. We did not sign a book with real people. Um, so now that the kind of the pandemic is kind of behind us, I'm looking forward to meeting readers and, and, and giving uh, talks here or there and, uh, and then signing books to real people right in front of me. <laughs> so that, that's part of what, you know, we're trying, I'm trying to set up uh, the best engagements as possible. Yeah. 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 It's always good to get out and it's, it's much easier. It's crazy when you've got, like when the pandemic's on and everything's shut oh, down yeah. and, oh, and yeah, 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 nobody knows what to do, kind of in a right. and how to do it. But exactly. um, you know, hey, it's it's what goes on. It's what we got to live with. Exactly, exactly. And hopefully that's 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 behind us those days. And people are just squares on a screen. You know, I, I mean, I taught classes with you know for a year and a half, like what we're doing now. And it was uh, you, you see these poor kids sitting in their sitting in their beds with their laptops looking miserable because they can't go across campus and have a coffee or a beer with one of their pals. I mean, it was, it was pretty awful. So, um, yeah. Oh, I'd be laying in the room drinking the coffee and the beer. Ditto. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. Well, you know, actually, and it's changed the interview world. I mean, from what oh, used to be a pretty full-time studio job to, like, almost nobody goes to the studio anymore. Uh, right. That's right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. and it's cheaper. A lot of writers and even entertainers, they do, they just do everything by Zoom. They sit in mm-hmm. the office and do five or six interviews a day, and that's it's yeah. cheaper than flying and hotels. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have so a lot of empty better. buildings in Boston, in fact, too, the corporations that don't have anyone working there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I bet. The business bet. world is hurting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a new world. It is. Yeah. Anyway, well, we appreciate you being here. We'll have your book and website, everything up on ours, so people can find you easily. Great. Now, the book we're talking about, Rumor of Evil, and that's a novel. Gary Braver, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Gary. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com. HouseOfMystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This is being a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.